Welcome to Town Square. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. As we like to say every week, this conversation can include you. The phone lines are open. Here's the number, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Five days and counting. After almost two years of a hard run at the presidential race, we know many of you just want this election finished. But even if it can't be over soon enough for you, local candidates hope your fatigue or fervor won't eclipse interest in Hawaii contests. It could be the constitutional amendments, maybe the proposed changes to the Honolulu Charter, a county council seat, or another race you're invested in. Tonight, we want to hear what's taking your attention and if you'll get out to vote. Joining me tonight, as they usually do for a pre-election town square, Contributing Editor Neil Milner and UH Public Policy Center Director Colin Moore are here, and you too. Again, our number is 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Welcome back. Great to be here as always, Beth Ann. Yes. Nice to have you here. Now, since we were all together right before the primary, we've watched, we've all been on a journey. We've been watching this thing develop, and and most of the attention has been going, obviously, to the presidential race. But if you had to characterize Hawaii elections, what you've been seeing here since we last talked, what would you what would you say? Comforting stability. Um, things really here are no different than they've ever been. Um, there are very few competitive races. Uh, the primary, of course, as it usually is here, is where the action is, where the Democrats fight. Uh, there's a tiny number of legislative races where we have competitive Republicans and Democrats. Um, but for the most part, we see stability. The Democratic Party still dominates. Voter turnout continues to be low. Um, and that's what we've seen for quite some time. I mean, in some ways, given the national scene, it's a bit refreshing. And, and does that mean you're going to tell me you think it's it's still a bit boring, Neil? Yeah, I think, I mean, comforting stability is comforting to the dominant party. And if you're looking, the elections in, elections in competitive two-party states are really uh, a magnitude above what we ever see here. They're is full of anger. They're full of advertising. They're full of all kinds of things. But they're also full of giving people choices about whom they want to vote for. There is essentially no election like that here on, on Oahu, with the exception of the mayor's race, which has turned out to be a lot less exciting and probably a lot less close than we thought. So if it's pretty tame or comfortingly stable, as you put it there a moment ago, Colin, then aside from the national outcome, which is either going to get the feel-good effect for some, depending upon you know, who you like or don't like, or, or that feel-terrible effect, what do we do with this local election where people have thought for a while that all of the attention nationally was going to somehow get people to channel that fervor into looking down the ballot and understanding that the people who were you know in their lives on a daily basis would have more of an impact than what happens you know with with Washington look this this is an idea that that sounds good on paper that that college professors like me you know would would hope 
is how it works. But in reality, it's not how it works, that people pay attention to the national level races. In some cases, that can even crowd out uh, media attention to local races. And although it is true that in most cases you have a certainly a higher probability of making the difference in a race, uh, often the issues directly affect you more, um, it, it's rarely the case that that national enthusiasm translates somehow into down-ticket races, particularly when it's mainly a negative race. We have two two candidates for president, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, who have some of the highest negatives ever recorded. And what that does is it makes people stay home for all of the races, for the down ticket races too. hope. I mean, you saw this with the enthusiasm around President Obama. Um, you know, that got people out to the polls. But when they're depressed, they stay home. And we're going to see that here, too. There are there is no down ticket here. I mean, that's in, in other states and in most other states, even states that are Democratic overall or Republican overall, there are some pockets where you do have some kind of meaningful choice, say, at the congressional level, uh, a House seat. Here, in effect, there is just a drop-off. I would imagine that most people, even high-information voters, cannot give us the name of the person running on the Republican ticket for U.S. senator or who is running against Tulsi Gabbard or who is running against Colleen Hanabusa. So that the drop-off issue, which is an issue somewhere else, is really not very relevant here because you have a more basic problem. It's an extraordinary drop-off, so you don't even want to think about it that way. So does that describe you? Are you simply just so fatigued? Is there nothing really to call you out to vote this time around if you haven't already done so? We want to hear from you, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Will you vote? Have you voted? And if so, why? And if not, then uh, maybe you'll sort of prove Colin Moore's point, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. All that said, though, we still have some issues that face both the state and certainly in, in Honolulu. And given the fact that we have had the number of voters who registered online come out to be at, you know, at a record level, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to correlate with a greater voter turnout. That's a big mystery. We don't, I mean, that's a very interesting thing. When I first saw the numbers of the increase in voter register, I thought maybe there was a mistake. Not that the Office of Elections ever makes mistakes, but I thought that maybe, <laughs> I thought that <laughs> maybe that not. was, certainly not. I thought that was one. It doesn't seem to be the case. So what you have here is an increase, a, a pretty sizable increase, right, in the number of people who have registered. It's a little bit hard to figure out why. Certainly there was one thing that we did this year that is not legal in Hawaii that hasn't been done before, and that's online voting, online registration. I, nonetheless, that's not the most effective way that you increase turnout. Uh, we're just talking about registration. Nonetheless, that just seems like a big jump. And although I don't think it's going to translate into a high voter turnout, it is a kind of mystery that even two trained professionals like Colin and myself can't answer definitively. But but it's certainly true, yes. I mean, I agree with Neil that the ability to register What, that online, we're trained professionals? <laughs> That's the part I'd put I agree with that about myself, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, that the ability to register online uh, certainly increased voter turnout. I mean, if you want to look 
when when you can see examples of this in the past year, the motor voter law that came into effect in 1996, that dramatically increased turnout. Um, but at the same time, that didn't – I mean, rather, that increased voter registration. Um, it didn't really lead to a dramatic increase in turnout. I mean, in, and in some cases, it turned out – you know, didn't increase much at all, you know, by, you know, a few thousand voters, even though a greater number were registered. And so I think that's what we're likely to see here, too. I mean, remember, people who are registering online, you're capturing at that point the people who are the least likely to turn out because they were the least likely to put in the effort to register. I mean, it was already not terribly difficult. You had to mail something in, um, and now you could do it online, which is great. I'm all for um, increasing the number of people who are registered to vote. But those are still the voters who are the least likely to turn there out. There was a little bit of a Facebook campaign, and what I heard from anecdotally is that our our registration here jumped at, at that time. But if you want to just mess around with the fact that it's Facebook and it jumped, it's much more likely to be younger potential voters than anything else. Younger potential voters have less attachment, lower information, and they also have consistently the lowest turnout in an election. So the more of those people that registered, the lower percentage overall of that group is, is likely to vote. Well, we've talked about that in past and, and made the point that just because somebody registers and if they're a younger voter because it's easy, it's fun, it's online maybe, but that it doesn't necessarily translate into any sort of investment in what's happening in an election, even though in theory somebody who is in their 20s or 30s probably has the most to gain from being involved with it potentially because they have – it may be more life to live and, and want to make sure that things are moving in a direction that they find well, to be consistent. Well, don't think about theory. Think about logistics for a second. One of the ways that you do increase voter turnout is to have same-day registration, yeah. where essentially you're there, you register, and you go. There's a long amount of time between the this registration when people ha- actually have to show up. And it's things happen. People get busy. People lose interest. I mean, it's not the way... Most of you listening like to think about the democratic political process, but in fact, it's true. Yeah, in the scheme of things, the majority of people in this state are not all that interested in voting compared to the other things that they have to do on any given election day. All right, we've got a couple of callers on the line joining the conversation. If you'd like to join us on Town Square tonight, you can, 941-3689. If you're on Oahu, please use that number. And from the neighbor islands, or if you're listening to the live stream someplace else, you can join us at 877-941-3689. Going to Norm from Mo'ili'ili. Aloha, Norm. Welcome to Town Square. Norm, you there? Okay, we're going to move on. Michelle calling us from Kaneohe. Aloha, Michelle. Okay. Okay. I hope we're not having a problem with the phone, and it's just a momentary glitch. If, in fact, we've lost you, give us a call back, 941-3689, from Oahu or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. It's a tough situation for you know some people who look at this and, and want it to be a certain way that people feel deeply invested in what's happening in their neighborhoods, what's happening on their islands, what's happening within Hawaii. But as we've had some of the conversations that we've had, Neil, on the conversation on the morning show, trying to get back to the reality of some of this and and why it's not necessarily the most attractive situation. 
I want to just ask you a little bit more about that because you know people are, are really easy with the conversation about well it's you know the democratic process and we have to support democracy and it feels that it's greatly under threat this time around which seems to be more so than than in other cases but how do you go back and begin to sync some of the reality that you've been studying for such a long time and you too Colin with the fact that we may be at a point where this could be a breaking point. Well, let's start with the most fundamentally pessimistic statement, which is that people don't behave in any way that's related to the theories about democratic participation and political inequality. There is some fascinating and pretty powerful work that's been produced over the past few years that shows that essentially people don't think and don't get attached to the political system in an informed way that is required if you're going to really have this kind of link between the voter and, the, and let's say, the policymaker, the politician. And on the other end, there isn't much of a relationship between what people want and what they get out of politics. So at that level, it's actually fairly profoundly pessimistic. I think that's why I get much more interested in kind of civic-level politics, where you're much closer to the action and where you're dealing with kind of with, with sort of concrete issues. There is no good answer to a good response to what I just said. And we certainly know that simply telling people that they're behaving badly and that they're and that it's in their self-interest to do something about it doesn't seem to have much effect. We no, can it'll talk, probably get you maybe a, a raspberry in your face. Well, or, or something. Or we something, can talk but, but a little bit more. I, want to give, I don't want to take this about. conversation too much in my direction right now. There are other ways that you can appeal to people, but it's very labor-intensive. It doesn't change a lot of things. And the states that have high levels of political participation have had it for a long time. States that have low levels of participation have had it for a long time. That's right. I mean, it's a cultural thing more than anything. I mean, you you vote because you've always been a voter, because you grew up in a family where people voted, not necessarily because you became immediately excited about the election. And that's, I mean, I think that's largely what what a generation now of research has shown. Um, You may not like that, but it, it turns out that that's true, which also means that in a case like Hawaii's, it's very, very difficult to turn it around, um, which is another pessimistic uh, uh, observation, but it, it also happens to be true that the idea that, oh, if we just get online voter registration or if we allow people to register, which we're going to do the day that you can vote, that might make a little bit of a difference. We hope it will, but it's not going to make a big difference. But it's not cultural in the way we toss out the word culture right. here, as in local people don't care. It's cultural in the sense that you respond to the key people around you. The, your friends and neighbors and your, your, and your family. That's right. And that's, that's right. And that's one of the ways that you increase voting turnout. You tell people in a kind of systematic sort of way that your friends and neighbors, that their friends and neighbors voted in the last election and are going to vote again. And there's a record of that. And, that's uh, very different. Yeah. And you can, you can make a difference yourself by, by doing that, by asking people to vote. I mean, that's how people participate in politics. That's the number one way because somebody asked them, put a little pressure on your friends and neighbors. Um, that's the way to get them to vote. The number one way to increase voter turnout, actually, it turns out, is to sort of shame people into doing <laughs> that's it. Right. That's a little bit – they yeah. kind of finessed around that. That's true. It that was very true. controversial at first, that, an early experiment. They got a tremendous amount of nasty letters about it, and then they stopped the experiment. But when they looked at the results overall, that one increased where you would simply didn't – what you would say, right, is that, um, okay – 
you know, if you don't vote, we're going to have a record of you not voting, and we're going to publicize it, which they can. You don't, they don't know how you voted, but there are registra- reg- records whether you voted or not. That angered a lot of people, but in fact, it did increase the turnout. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> most of the time now. There are other ways that they've tried to do this without shaming. Again, with some fairly high levels of success relative to the to the other ways that you try to change voter turnout. What works? That works. Nothing else. That there seems to be. Well, I mean, you said there were other ways. I mean, the idea of talking okay. to, your, to your friends okay. and neighbors well, and moving within your sphere, not, sphere of influence. We get that part, but is there something beyond either shaming people or having this grand idea of what we should do no, because I, we should? Care? Well, the, the middle ground is essentially that you tell that you are you tell the a voter that his or what what his or her friends and neighbors are doing. What is neighbor? The, the neighbors voted. It's a kind of social pressure that's very similar to what you do when you get other people to try to try to get other people to do good deeds, and so that kind of works. Where it's not so much about patriotism or behaving in a in a kind of politically proper way, it's about saying, you know what, your friends, you know, you, you, your neighbors voted, um, and it, it would be a good idea if you voted. That seems to be the principle. There aren't many ways to increase voter turnout. None that are very dramatic. Uh, but that one, it's very labor intensive. This is not something that the Office of Elections can do from some office or that you can do by having rock the vote things. This is pretty much hand to hand, you know, face to face work. Given the fact that we're not really good with that kind of face to face and hand to hand work ongoing, I mean, hey, maybe we I'm talk to great. a couple. You are great. <laughs> you may be great. But in general, yeah. everyone for donkey's years has talked about. Why we don't have the kind of voter turnout that once Hawaii had, and it seems always to be you know that's the litmus test whether people are engaged or not if they get out to vote. Do we have to get off of that? Well, I mean, it's still an important question. I mean, the the troubling thing about Hawaii is it used to have fairly high voter turnout, and now it's quite low. Um, and there, there's a number of theories, but no one I think has a, a convincing answer for exactly what happened. Uh, but for the most part, states that are high voter turnout states, Minnesota usually comes in as number one. It's because, you know, they have high degrees of trust. They have a lot of civic engagement. That's the stuff we we don't have as much here, although I imagine our levels of trust are reasonably high. Um, and maybe it takes, you know, more civic education in the schools, I mean, to give students a sense of this. Maybe it takes an educational campaign for parents to to take their children to vote. I mean, some some sense of instituting uh, this expectation that you vote. Well, states all these most of these states are fairly com- are highly competitive two party states, and uh, but the, not all of them. Not all of them. Yeah. I guess that's right. I mean, it Massachusetts be, has high voter turnout, and it's not particularly it's, right. competitive. Exactly. Yeah. That may be more of a function of higher education levels. I don't know, but the but Colin is right. It's a mystery that it's never been solved here because no one really has looked at it very closely. Has anything uh, been looked at? regarding how the movement of our population has been going in the last couple of years, where we've had a lot of, not just the last couple of years, but we've had a lot of outflow. We've had people move into the state who may not be as you know invested or engaged in what happens here. Maybe they feel far more so in, in the state they came from. Uh, we were you know, we were told years ago that as the population changed and as fewer people who had been born and raised in Hawaii were here, that that was going to have all sorts of ramifications. Is this one of them? I, I think that – I mean my, my guess is that a lot of the people who do move to Hawaii actually do participate. I mean are, are tend to be voters because if they were voters where they came from, they're, they're likely to be voters here. I actually think this is a, this is a homegrown phenomenon. 
Um, you know, older mm-hmm. older people in Hawaii still do vote. Um, younger people do not, and most of those younger people are people who grew up here. I think the, the folks who move here from the mainland, my guess is I don't have data on this, but I feel confident that they probably participate at reasonably high rates. The yeah. argument during the Lingle administration, which was based on no evidence but a kind of combination of guessing and hope, was that you were, that the people who were moving here, that this is the simple argument, more and more Howleys are moving over here. They're more likely to be Republican. They're, they're, they're situating themselves in certain places like the Big Island. Therefore, we were going to have a stronger Republican movement. Well, it was wrong at every level. And in fact, the Republican Party gained a little bit during the Lingle administration and then dropped off. I think that the voters here, there are, there are two ways to think about it, one of which is that the voters who came over tend to be Democratic. Democratic voters or become that. Or the second way is that the uh, difference between the number of Democrats and the number of Republicans is so great that even if there is an increase in the number of Republicans, it, it doesn't show up in any appreciable way like in winning elections. You mentioned that both of you have mentioned that at some point that generational transfer of civic responsibility stopped or it just decreased to a level to where, you know, it it didn't show up in how people turned out to vote. You've spent a lot of years here, Neil. Any sense of when that that dip really began to show itself? Well, the dip in turnout is generally pretty precipitously downward after about the 1960 election. I think that's right. So I don't know. It just kept dropping gradually from high to low turnout. What what you what we really don't know. There are two things that that people talk about when they talk about generations or voting. One one hypothesis, one theory is that the is that the older you are, the more likely you are to vote, and that goes way up until eighty five. The other is that generations are different in terms of turnout. That that certain generations are were much more highly participatory, and you could see that. Possibly in the in the AJA movement and that tremendous amount of political interest. You know, I'll, because I have the data here in front of me, I'll give I'll give everyone an example of just how dramatic this change was. I mean, pri- I mean, in 1988, turnout was 83 uh, percent. Uh, by 2000, it was 58 percent. That is a very big drop that happened very quickly. Yeah, and not just going back to the years dramatic, you know, right after statehood where there was such a dramatic Yeah, yeah it was stable for a long time, enjoy. which is why this yeah. is such a mystery because it, it happened in the early 90s and it never recovered. Um, and maybe maybe some listeners have some thoughts on why that might be, but um, but or it is... going to have a PhD student take well, out no, yeah, it. Is, it is one of the great mysteries yes, of local really politics. Yep. Yes. All right, our number is 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Three six eight nine. We were having some problems with the phones, but we think that we've got it fixed. So give us a call nine four one three six eight nine or eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. Now, you know all of what we've talked about. Notwithstanding, I mean, there still are some issues that we need to talk about that are going to face people if they go out and vote on Tuesday, or if they're you know walking in before the uh, the fifth comes on Saturday. The race out in, in Hawaii, Kai, with, with Samsung possibly having his Senate seat, you know, not necessarily uh, guaranteed to him this time around with Stanley Chang, and the fact that we might wind up as having a single-party Senate, um, that 
that is a, a that's something to be concerned about. Well, I guess. I mean, it, that's, it's one value to take into consideration. It, it'll be interesting to see how many usual Democrats are, will vote for Sam Sloan because they would like to keep a Republican in there. It's an interesting race because, like a lot of the, even the contested races here, they don't get argued very explicitly on ideological grounds. So those, you know, Sam is a very outspoken conservative, and I, and Stanley Chang is not, but they don't get argued that way. It's a, the race is, the significance of the race is that the Republicans would go from from one to zero, and they would lose someone who's feisty and who actually does talk about why it's good to be a conservative. The other part of it, though, is that Stanley Chang is a really good campaigner. He walks the districts. Sam, Sam never really has had to do it quite the same way, and it's people think it's going to be close. That area has become, I think, slightly more democratic. All right, we're going to go to Van calling us from Kaimuki to see what you're thinking about this election. Aloha, Van. Thank you for your patience. Hi. Hi there. Um, I'm 34 years old, and I remember signing up to vote when I could at 18, and I was super excited. And I haven't missed an election um, yet for either the local elections or the national elections. And this is the first year where I'm actually, um, I received my absentee ballot, like about a week ago or so, and it's been sitting on my table. And I've absolutely got no urge to open that up and send it in or even show up on November 8th. I'm just very tired of everything. It's been a very emotional roller coaster up and down with the whole um, presidential campaign this year. And it's actually taken my focus off of any of the local elections. So I couldn't tell you, um, I'm usually sort of well enough versed on who the candidates are, where they stand enough to vote. And I couldn't tell you other than um, Bijou and Caldwell. I couldn't tell you any of the other candidates what they're standing for, any bills that are coming up that are, you know, being put to the vote. Well, Van, Van, it sounds like, like, you know, it's not just you. I mean, from we're hearing this story kind of repeated over and again, and you've got lots of company. And that's probably not a good story for what we've been trying to bring about with greater awareness, engagement, and investment in our own democratic process here. What would it take to, to make you open up that envelope and really want to send it back? Um, at this point, not much. The things, I mean, I'm a bit resting on my laurels, too, because I'm from a democratic state, and my vote as far as the presidential election goes is not going to affect anything for my state. Yeah, 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 but that's the idea that no, we hear I'm from a lot of people. Laurel. I is, know that. Is that, is that what's my it. one vote going to do? Not, not much in my eyes. Okay. All right, Van. Thank you very much for calling. College. Well, you know, this, we hear this, this story all over. The we place. see that we hear this story a lot, and I think, I mean, it is one important thing uh, that that Van illustrates here is that when people dislike the candidates at the top of the ticket, they stay home. That fear doesn't make people turn out to vote. That depression doesn't make people turn out to vote. In fact, there's a lot of studies that suggest that the point of negative ads, in fact, is not to persuade anybody. It's to make Keep sure it's to make sure people stay home. That they they have the exact reaction that Van is having. And I think that does translate into their likelihood to stay home for the down ticket races. Because yes, it's true. I, you know, I hate to break it to anyone listening. Uh, the chance of you making a difference in the presidential election is vanishingly close to zero. But there are all of there are important local elections. But the problem is 
that because the presidential election gets all of the attention and crowds out everything else, that means that people stay home in part because of what Van says, not because she doesn't think that she should care about these issues, but because she simply doesn't know that much about the candidates because the media has been fixated on Trump and Hillary for months. Yeah, and that barrier is so insurmountable in her mind that she doesn't even bother to find out more about what's happening that may in fact impact her life a whole lot more than what happens. Or it may not. That's the other thing. I'm very careful about shaming anybody for well, not no, voting. This is, this is not to shame. This is just to say that I mean, we always well, talk about politics <laughs> being local and people knowing what's going on in their neighborhoods and what's happening in you know, on their islands and how that is much more interactive here than in many places. And, it is? and yet, well, I mean, people feeling that because it's small, they can find people that they're more accessible, perhaps, uh, much more so than if you were in California. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But let me go back to what Colin was saying. The recent poll shows that 80 percent of the electorate wants this election to be over, just wants it over. I'm one of those. I, I want to go back to my garden. I don't even have a garden. <laughs> but but there, there's also some signs that, that what what Van is saying is, is happening in some kind of disconcerting ways, one of which is that and this may make Clinton voters more happy. It's it seems to be that nobody is changing their minds about the candidates at this stage. But what is happening is that there is a higher percentage of people compared to the other elections that are saying we're not going to vote for either one of those candidates. Now that there's a switch away from that, that would suggest that there would be a lower turnout. I've been mystified by how little talk there has been, how little good, solid evidence there's been about whether this election is going to dampen turnout or not. Um, even the even the, the really good polls haven't gotten at that. But I think that you're going to see some of this translated in, into, and it is, as Colin says, it's not about it's not about passion. It's by a kind of disgust and, and weariness that makes you just want to make it all go away. And one of the ways you make it go away is, is to say, I'm not going to vote. I'm just not going to bother. All right, we're going to take a few more callers. We're going to go to Rena calling us from Haliva. Aloha, Rena. Hi, can you hear me? We can. Um, so I have a question about, and I don't know how it's worded on the ballot, but the state prosecuting attorney, that section, because I have the absentee vote ballot as well. Um, I don't know anything about law. You know, I look up the basic information on the two um, options, Kaneshige and the other guy, and um, I ended up just asking a friend who is a prosecuting lawyer, and his opinion was that both guys are pretty horrible. Vote for the less horrible guy. Really, the general public shouldn't even be voting on the state prosecutor the way, I guess, it works on who the candidates are. We don't really have good options. It's just very confusing. It was actually really disheartening. Well, we, well, we're certainly not going to tell you who to vote for and, and why, but the oh, mere yeah, fact that, that you're, talk, that you're talking to a friend seems to be making the point that Colin made earlier, that that's how a lot of people are trying to figure this out. We should also be clear that you're not voting on the state prosecutor. No, this is the, the county, city and county prosecutor, the prosecuting attorney for the city and county of Honolulu, a uh, uh, position that, that the current incumbent, Keith Kaneshiro, has occupied for quite some time. And likely to continue to if... if it seems that yeah. way, Yeah. All right. Thanks very much for the call, Rena. We're going to go now to Michelle from Kaneohe and hope the phone line works this time. Hello, Michelle. Hi. There we go. Yes, it works. And there you are. Glad to have you with us. Welcome to Town Square. Oh, thank you. Uh, Okay. I'm 
I voted about a week ago, mailed my ballot in, and I think it's vitally important to vote because if your party doesn't get in, that means that the other party's influence will influence things like the Supreme Court and how what direction we want this country to go. And since the Obama administration, I feel like the country has, by and large, become more liberal, um, you know, in Supreme Court decisions. Okay, Michelle, I, I want to just stop you I there. I want to just stop you there for a second. Hang on a second. I understand that you're, you're focusing on the, the national, the presidential race, but are you invested at all with what's happening in, in your own backyard? Absolutely. I okay. voted Democrat because I, all the way, because I don't want to see the Republican Party get any more entrenched in either the Senate or the Congress. I want to see us take it back because I think the only way that we're going to be able to stop this Republican gridlock is for the Democratic Party to take back both the Senate and the Congress. Okay, we're going to stop you there. because if got, that happens, and we have a Republican president, hopefully we can put, put some brakes on the maniac. Okay, we, we got you. Thanks very much for your tenacity. We appreciate it. We're going to go now to Carolyn calling us from, I'm not sure where, but Carolyn, are you on the phone? The Island. Nice to have you join us. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm calling about um, an earlier segment of the program where you were talking about um, online regi- registering to vote. Yes. Um, I was watching Rachel Maddow today on MSNBC, and she exposed something that I have done a little more research into, and that is that there are sites out there on Google that are paid for, obviously, um, by um, people or the party or whoever does not want Hillary Clinton to win the office of president. So they are offering, if you want to vote for Hillary, to vote online. All and, right. Well, well, you know, we've seen yeah, I'm, I'm watching. I'm watching Colin Moore's going on, and head I think my nod voice here. Is quivering okay, right ha- hang on a second because I want to have him respond to you. I mean, I, I thanks for bringing that up. I, I don't I haven't watched that segment of Rachel Maddow, but I will say to everybody, you cannot vote online. You can register online. You cannot vote online. So if anyone ever makes that claim, they are lying. All right. Glad we were able to dispatch that rather quickly. Our number is 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 if you call us from other than on Oahu. Let's talk about some of the things, though, that despite how many people turn out to vote, still going to be an issue and still are going to get decided this time around. Let's look first at the two constitutional amendments. The first one, looking at the threshold for... A jury trial. And maybe for some people that's not going to be so much of an issue. It's not so sexy, but it's certainly clogging up the docket. Well, the the logic behind it, the proponents say that the cap right now is very small. It's out of date. The amount of money is out of date. $5,000. Yeah, $5,000. And that realistically, by you're, you're essentially meaning that it has to be at least $10,000 to have a jury trial. The opposition says 
that will keep people from having a trial. I think what you have to think about is the context there, which is that trials are unlikely in any circumstance, especially if there's a small amount of money involved because you can't get a lawyer to work for that kind of money. And that there are a lot of people who say, well, this will encourage folks to go to mediation to get the things worked out. But I think the fundamental thing, whether you're for it or against it, is to understand how little a role jury trials play with that little amount of money, whether it's $5,000 or $10,000. It's slightly above what small claims court, which is not really a jury trial either. That And so I don't think it affects the scales of justice very much one way or the other. Colin, anything to add to that? No, I think Neil sums that up, that up pretty well. Okay. I mean, this is, this is a way to sort of uh, uh, make the uh, cases keep out move we can keep so, out. more yeah. quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. The second question has to do with what happens with excess revenues. Do you know people get their little couple dollars back, or do we say it's okay to have as an alternative appropriating that, that money to the general funds and, and trying to you know bring down some liabilities? Right. The state. So, so the way it works right now is the Constitution requires the state whenever it has this general fund balance that exceeds five percent of its general revenue funds two years in a row, they have to put that money into an emergency fund. The proposal now is to give a little more flexibility. So the state would be able to use that to make prepayments on general obligation bond debts or probably more likely to put the money to health and retirement benefits because we have a very serious problem with unfunded liabilities for public sector workers. Um, so so the idea, the way to think about this amendment is it gives the state a little more flexibility in how it can spend the money. The, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that the legislature can already do that. They can use the general revenue funds to pay down debts, to put more money towards uh, pension obligations. They don't need this special amendment to do so. Um, But I think they like this because it forces them to make some difficult decisions. They can say that they have a surplus and then the Constitution will make them put that money in, in to, to pay for liabilities that are kind of politically sometimes difficult to pay down. Yeah, a little more pressure. Neil, anything to add to that? No, I'm All fine. All right, then we're going to move along. We have Ann calling us from the Big Island. Aloha, Ann. Welcome to Town Square. Aloha. Uh, I have uh, a question, and then I can also make a comment about our local elections here in Hawaii. But my uh, question is, um, because I've never done this before, but for the presidential candidates, uh, is it uh, um, available to write in a candidate? I at the poll. That's you know what we can check that while we're here. I think I'm not sure that there's a write-in opportunity here, but let's we can we can check that. We'll get we'll get back to you later in the show, maybe in five minutes to to find oh, out. Oh, that would be that would be wonderful. Okay. Thank you, um, because I'm disheartened with both. And I don't want to vote for what I would term as, you know, the best of the worst. You can Um, also go, so you haven't seen the ballot yet, right? You can also go on the Office of Elections website. You can just Google Office of Elections. That would be the best place to look. Yeah, and they'll have a sample ballot, and it will say on there, I'm pretty sure, it'll leave an opening if, in fact, you can vote for a writing candidate. There are other candidates on the ballot. That's right, the third-party candidates. Third, fourth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> there might be more. I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the ballot yet. I don't think, yeah, I don't think Bernie's on there. And that's no, 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 no. Bernie's no. definitely no. not. No, oh, no. That's vote. right. No, Bernie's not the on The Libertarians there. are. Yeah, the Libertarian and oh, the Green okay. Party. Green, Green Party's in, on there, too. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. Thanks. And then, I'm, and then my comment would be for our local elections is I, I have to go Democratic the whole way through, and I I really have never done that in the past, but I am just so um, disenfranchised by the Republican Party being able to put up um, the candidate that they do have uh, for the presidential nomination that I'm just um, disgusted beyond words. So I cannot endorse anyone that is affiliated with that party uh, this go-around. This is what really frightens uh, Republicans. I mean, think about it. Because you're so disgusted by mm-hmm. the president that even at the, you know, at your legislative level, at state legislature and so on, that you're, that it affects your what's called the down-ballot behavior. That's one of the nightmares that Republicans have, unless they're really strong Trump supporters, because it seems right. like that's going to happen. He's never run. Yeah. Trump Trump has never run in this election as well as your average Republican would, would run, and so that's going to kind of filter down, I think. Right, and I, I and I really think the Republican Party needed to step up and see this individual as a dangerous person and deter, defer, get him out of this uh, position that he now is in. And the fact that they did not distance themselves from that um, really has me disassociating with the Republican Party. Well, and I think your reaction is not atypical. I mean, Republicans are really quite concerned that the Trump candidacy could, for Latino voters, for some women voters, I mean, could lose Mm -hmm. these demographics for for a very long period of time. Um, um, Like, for example, the African-Americans pretty much became extremely loyal Democratic Party voters after the 1964 election when they felt like Barry Goldwater didn't support civil rights. So, um, so, So thanks so much for your call. Um, well, thank you very much. Thanks for having the program. You're welcome. Always happy to be here and talk to everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Going now to Phil calling us from Honolulu. Aloha, Phil. Thanks for your patience. Hi. Thanks Hi for there. taking my call. Pleasure. I have hopefully a simple question. I'm just trying to um, make uh, as informed decisions as possible on Tuesday, and I'd like to know if you could advise or recommend uh, one or may, maybe many sources of information that I can go to to try and find out where the candidates stand. Yeah, and, there, there's um, some there's some there's some great the, sources uh, out there. There's the power ballot that uh, Kano Hawaii put out with Common Cause Hawaii. That's one you can certainly look on the League of Women Voters website. They've got a lot of good information too. And if you're looking to get information about the, I don't know if you're. Uh, I, yeah, you're calling us from Honolulu. So if you want to know more about the charter amendments, then you can go on to the, the city site, and they have the whole bo- you know, uh, booklet that they sent out to everybody that you can download and go question by question. They have both pros and cons. And the Civil, civil Beat, the online, the civil beat online, the online yeah. newspaper, has an election, 2016 election section, they, where they've interviewed a lot of the candidates for the legislature. So you can get... You won't always get the detail on policy that you may want, but you'll get some. You'll certainly get something that should help guide you. It, it's actually pretty good. The Civil Beat one in particular, mm-hmm. I'll put a plug into. I mean, for the, for the Charter Amendments, the League of Women Voters has a very nice pro and op argument section. But you know, they ask Civil Beat asked everyone about ten in depth questions that I think everyone would find quite useful. Thanks very much for the call. Okay, we hope great. that helps. Thank you for, for the information. You're welcome. Going now to Susan calling us also from Honolulu. And if you'd like to be next, our number is 941 
or 877-941-3689. Susan? Yes, hi. You know, I wanted to um, address the high voter rate that we used to have, and that was because local politics shifted from being all white to finally representing all nationalities in Hawaii. I can remember, I'm Japanese, I can remember my mom being so excited to, you know, campaign for Danny Noe and uh, Senator Matsumaga and Taxi Mink because they're Asian and they're our first Asian politics, politicians, and that's why we had such a high turnout. Well, you're absolutely, that is absolutely right. Great. Thank you so much for calling with that. Want to pick that up for a bit? Uh, well, I was going to say, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the excitement around statehood, the opportunity to vote in competitive elections. I mean, there were some competitive elections during the late territorial period, um, but to vote for candidates who people felt represented the local population. The, 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 the question is, the puzzle is, why, why didn't that sustain itself over time? I mean, I think people like your mother are likely still vote. Um, you know, older people here still have that experience. They remember a time. Um, well, maybe you'd have to be quite old to remember that time, but a time when it really was difficult to uh, to, to have a choice of candidates. But somehow that, that message wasn't passed down to people's grandchildren, and I think that's the, the troubling and mysterious thing about local yeah, politics. Yeah, you know, before I was talking about one of the theories about these kinds of things is that it's generational. It isn't just that the older you get, the more likely you are to vote, that there may be, and there was some talk about the World War II generation right. having much more political engagement. That might be, and I we really should thank her for suggesting this, that might help to explain this, that there may in fact be a big generational difference if you looked at, in, in other words, over time you look at this, that that the, that kind of engagement, which was clearly extraordinarily strong, and it got reflected in a very sophisticated combination of political campaigns that involved the best grassroots work you ever saw anywhere, plus pioneering stuff in mass communications. That's that's absolutely right. And you can also see that translate into policy. Hawaii used to think of itself and be a leader on a lot of innovative policy solutions. I mean, prepaid health care being the most famous. We never lead on almost anything, anything anymore. That's right. No, we know where we are. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a few more calls, but I want to make sure that we get through some of the discussion about the charter amendments because we've got some weighty questions in there. So let's start with the first one. Should the police commission have greater authority to suspend or dismiss the chief of police and have additional powers to investigate complaints concerning officer misconduct? And should the chief of police be required to submit a written explanation of for his or her disagreement with the commission. Ripped right out of the headlines, a lot of angst over what people have seen happen in Honolulu. And this question, I mean, I think there's there's no... <laughs> you know, no question where this came from. Where, mm-hmm. Or, the, or what, that it's number one, because it, it was so chafing for people for the last couple of years. I mean, without without telling anyone how to vote, I mean, I will say that I think... Many people can observe the process and everything that's gone on with Chief Kealoha and, and, and imagine that we could use a police commission both with, with, with more teeth. Um, I mean, to hold the police chief more accountable, to allow 
that chief to be dismissed. Not, I mean, because the commission doesn't feel like he's doing his job effectively. Um, Neil, what do you think about this? Well, I think that it isn't just just Chief Kealoha. There's been a kind of hands-off organizational norm among the police commission, at least as long as I can remember. So what you have is it coming to a head this time, combined with it being uh, charter time. Um, there is whether you how much power politicians or non-police should have over a chief has always been an issue. And some people worry about it going too far in the direction where they can be dismissed from political officials. But what this tries to do is to give the the, um, the police commission some investigative power, that is, by having subpoenas. There was no sign at all that subpoenas or no subpoenas that the present police commission wanted to do anything at all about investigating what was going on in the police department. So that's the impetus is there. It's been moving in that direction for a long time. And trying to step back and being objective about it, I found that the list, what's listed as the opposition is, is pretty weak saying that these people aren't expert enough to be able to do it and, and so on. Um, that just sounds to me like a sort of a, uh, I have to say it, a cop-out, uh, because there, there, uh, there are more sophisticated objections to it. But, but what Colin said is really the essence, that you've got a troublesome situation. You had no indication of interest in investigating it. You didn't have rules that made it easy. This is going to be a rule that makes it easier. All right. Let's move on to charter question four, because this is another one that we've been dealing with for a while and asking the question, is it prudent to be able to bring all of transportation under one you know, umbrella? And more than that, giving Hart's board, the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation's board, uh, a sense of, of, of more authority and, and more perhaps autonomy than we've had in past. This is an interesting one because in normal circumstances at other places, this would be fairly routine. It's fairly common that you have some kind of collective transportation authority. They're often regional. That is a three-county authority. Um, this is not quite the same, even if you take out the context. But I think what's, what's really worrying people about this, it sounds like a fairly nice administrative thing to do. What's really worrying people about this is that rail is so messed up right now that this, this uh, amendment – Charter Amendment assumes a certain kind of stability and the solution of certain kinds of simple problems like where do we get a billion dollars? Um, and as long as that normalcy isn't there, I think this people are not going to trust this Charter Amendment any more than they trust rail right now. I mean, there's kind of a broader perspective on this, interestingly, is that, I mean, we seem to go back and forth with, I mean, the police commission is, is, is somewhat similar. I mean, trying to insulate as much as yeah. possible these organizations from politics and then to expose them to more politics. In this case, a pro argument would be that this city department of transportation services, you know, the, the mayor and the city council would also be ha- held more directly accountable to the voters. Um I think that there's a – I mean, this is an incredibly complex uh, charter amendment, and usually this stuff – Is too much packed into it? There's, I yeah. think there's too much packed into it. I mean, it, it's it's difficult to explain all the moving pieces, you know, in a few minutes on the radio. I mean, and so I, what I would encourage people to do is to take a careful look at this. There's been a, a fair bit of writing on this um, and, and, you know, to, uh, to consider it carefully because there's good arguments on both sides. All right. Let's pick up another one. Charter Amendment 7 – 
Should the city use its powers to serve the people in a sustainable and transparent manner and promote stewardship of natural resources for present and future generations? And should, here's the, the real part, create the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency. We've heard that if, in fact, that were to happen, it might be easier to get federal money, that there would be a sense of gravitas to this that would be different than if it were simply created by a mayor, for example. Do you agree with that? Potentially. I don't really see the need to create another layer of bureaucracy. Um, I mean, maybe I sound a bit libertarian in saying that, but I, I, it's not clear to me that this, uh, this grand title of the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency would manage to do a whole lot other than add a, yet another layer to the city. When it, bec- when it comes to city and state bureaucracy, it's not a bad idea to be at least a little bit libertarian, not out of ideology, <laughs> but out of experience. And I think what I think what I worry about on this one is not the fact that we should have more sustainability, but we tend to set up institutions that that essentially don't do very much, are not monitored very much. And so essentially and, and that's not necessarily on the institution. They're not given the resources to do it. They're underemployed. No one follows up to see what kind of work they do. And so we have – it isn't just that you have another layer. You have an ineffective layer. And I think that that's one of the obstacles to to this particular amendment. Let's move on a little bit because when you're talking about truth in government and trust in government – Charter Amendment 15 is asking whether the term limit for the prosecuting attorney, the mayor, and the council members be three consecutive four-year terms. Uh, you know what? I'm always I'm always stymied by the ter- the term limit arguments. It's all about your own ideologies and your own hopes and your own dreams. And so I really don't have any kind of compelling argument to make here. To increase it. To increase it, yeah. to decrease it, to not have it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, so I, I basically agree with Neil, but I'll, I'll explain so people yeah. can think about this, explain, you know, how I think about it, which is that, look, why should we, you know, voters are responsible. Why shouldn't they be able to elect whomever they want? They why want should to. we put term limits on anything, you know, aside from the president or some chief executive with extraordinary powers? Um, on the other side, it's very true empirically that incumbents uh, – easily can get reelection. Partly that's maybe because they're good politicians, but also because, you know, they, uh, you know, they're always on television. Uh, voters know them. Um, they have all of these institutional advantages and easy time raising money. So, so maybe there is a need to say after you've occupied one of these positions for three terms, enough's enough. Uh, so I think Neil's right. This just depends on how you feel about, you know, should basically should we force turnover or should we give voters the freedom to pick whomever they like? All right. We're going to take a couple more calls. But before we do, I want just a, a quick bead from each of you about the OHA race, because for many years, people felt that, you know, unless they were Hawaiian and, and deeply knowledgeable, that it would not be respectful to be voting in this. Now, this year, we have just the opposite message. I mean, everybody should be voting. Everybody should understand what's at stake. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, so OHA as a rule tends to be quite a stable institution. The incumbents uh, usually win. In this case, we have two challengers, Mililani Trask, Kelly Akina, um, who are often thought of as on opposite poles of, you know, the, the spectrum of... Um, and seem strange bedfellows. Um, very strange bedfellows. Well, only one admits to being a bedfellow. Well, in this yeah, one, right? exactly. And, uh, Akina is always saying there's some kind of link. And exactly. Trask is not um, saying that. Uh, but, and suggesting in this case that, they sh- that everyone should turn out 
to vote Kali'i Akina, Akina in particular, mm-hmm. um, and this would be a way to, to clean up OHA. I mean, it is interesting that this this has become this has become the debate. But both of them clearly feel the need that there has to be some way, and the only way that they uh, can defeat the incumbents is by um, encouraging non-Hawaiians to vote in this election. All right, we're going to go take a couple more calls. Laura calling us from Mililani. Laura, in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you to be brief and thank you for your patience. Sure, no problem. I'm calling to say that I do not really understand uh, this attitude of not voting. I'm a transplanted New Yorker slash Virginian. Well, there you go. Three, three years, and I've and I and I and I've already voted a couple of times. So I really don't understand how people can, when people have died and have been bloodied, um, how people can just not. Vote. Well, you know, I mean, Linda, you just sort of that's pro- that's right. Collins I mean, I point. think that's the thing is, if you're a voter, you're always a voter. It doesn't matter where you move. It doesn't matter if the elections are exciting. Just the idea that you wouldn't vote sounds crazy to you. And that's that's the attitude we need to instill in, in other people. But remember, because of your enthusiasm, uh, you use the kind of arguments that do not necessarily appeal to people who aren't enthusiastic. They and don't resonate at they all. They don't yeah. resonate. And that's what's frustrating about people who are pushing to to get others to vote. All right, we're going to go to Brian calling us from what Waipahu. Aloha, Brian. Welcome to Town Square. Hi. Um, I'm a Republican. I've been voting since I've been voting, you know, 18. Always Republican for president. A few Democrats here and there in local races. But this year, <laughs> I ain't voting Trump. It's just ridiculous what the party has done and all those people who came out to vote for Trump. I mean, they hijacked a party. You're talking it's about the caucus. To be considered a Republican. Yeah, the Republican caucus earlier this year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, and in Hawaii, it was a shock that, you know, a lot, majority of them went for Trump. And it's like, you don't understand that there's better qualified candidates. I mean, I, I voted for Kasich, Ohio governor. My God, that is a state that has always voted for the winner since how long, and they had a chance to put someone well-qualified like Kasich. And I think Kasich would have been blowing uh, Hillary off the wall, I mean, off the charts right now if he was nominated. Brian, I want to ask you, uh, Brian, Brian, stop. I have no idea what your strategies are. Okay, Brian, but I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question because you're, you're here, and we've just heard what you said. How does this affect your willingness to engage with the Hawaii Republican Party? I just want to yell at them. I'm not happy with them. Who are you going to vote for? Well, you kind of are. So, so who, who are you going to vote for? for? Are you, I won't be voting. I won't be voting for Trump. That's for sure. It's either Gary or Hillary. Yeah. Yeah. Depending okay. what Trump says the next, you know, few days, I might, out of bitterness, just vote for Hillary. <laughs> well, the Hillary campaign we've hopes you story. will. <laughs> yeah, we, we've heard that story before. Thanks very much, Brian, for calling in. Right, Brave bye. man. <laughs> All right, we're coming down to the last, literally the last minute. Any last words for everyone before we go off and see what happens next Tuesday night? Well, look, we've talked a lot about voter turnout, and I'm going to say this. One slogan that I've always hated is the no vote, no grumble idea. Just because you don't turn out to vote doesn't mean you can't participate in politics. There are lots of ways to do it. So if you don't come out to vote this time, I hope you still write letters, uh, call your representatives, do all that. Quickly, Neil. Well, I was going to say that what's interesting about the presidential election right now and all the way through this thing is how stable it has been. People worry very much, especially Clinton folks. Hillary Clinton has been leading all the way along the line. There isn't that much change yet. 
All right, we'll see what happens when we all reconvene next week. Meanwhile, I will see you tomorrow morning right here for The Conversation. Have a good evening.